The Guardian. What's the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance? Well, the old joke goes, it's precisely the thickness of a prison wall. But many of us avoid tax in all sorts of legal ways. We have tax-free savings accounts. We save our receipts to claim work-related expenses. Or we buy booze in duty-free stores on foreign holidays. All perfectly fair ways of keeping a tax man off our loot. But what about when multi-billion pound global corporations do it? I'm Adit Chakraborty, and in this week's business podcast, we're going to delve into the murky world of tax havens. Joining me in the studio, I've got The Guardian's Felicity Lawrence, one of our lead investigators in this newspaper's Tax Gap series on tax avoidance by large British corporations. Alongside her is Nicholas Shackson, author of a new book called Treasure Islands, Tax Havens and the Men Who Stole the World. Last but not least, we've got Morris Glassman, newly ennobled as Lord Glassman of Stoke Newton and Stamford Hill. He's advising Ed Miliband on what he needs to do to rebuild Labour Party policy. But before that, he was a doughty campaigner in the City of London against the power of the banks. Welcome to you all. Now, last Sunday, the Metropolitan Police allegedly used CS spray to break up a protest in central London against firms who avoid tax. Nick Shackson, the argument from the demonstrators uh, at UK and and elsewhere is that if big companies and other people who should be paying their taxes did so, then we wouldn't need to make such savage cuts to public spending. How big is a tax gap and, and how has that emerged? Well, the tax gap comes from various different uh, areas. One area is offshore, but it's not only offshore. Um, there are it's quite disputed how big the tax gap is. There's work done by Richard Murphy estimating about $120 billion. Part, only part of that is, uh, is, is offshore tax gap. So it, these are figures that clearly are, if we're looking, if we're comparing to the cuts that are being made, we're, we're talking about the same sort of ballpark um, uh, here. So when UK and cuts say that this is a clear alternative to austerity. There's, there's clearly something there. I mean, one can argue about the numbers, but, but clearly we're talking about the same orders of magnitude. So it's about $120 billion, what, about 80, 80 billion pounds a year that's gone, gone um, missing? Pounds, sorry, 120 billion pounds. Pa- pounds, pounds, okay. And you write a lot about the offshore game. Tell us yep. briefly what that is. Well... There's this traditional view that a tax haven is a small Caribbean island or maybe Switzerland. Um, but if you follow the analysis through, what you find is that the, the most important tax havens in the world are big OECD countries. Um, so the Caribbean islands are obviously an important part of it. But, but we're talking about the United Kingdom, the United States, um, Switzerland, of course, the Cayman Islands, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Ireland are all very, very, very important. They are the sort of top tax havens in the world. Um, and what tax havens do, uh, it's not just about tax. Uh, ultimately, what they offer is escape, escape from taxes, escape from criminal laws, escape from financial regulations. And these, a tax haven is always, one must always remember the word, word elsewhere when you're talking about tax havens because it's about providing these facilities for people and entities elsewhere. 
So the laws of the Cayman Islands, for example, are not designed for the benefit of 50,000-odd Cayman Islanders. They're designed for the, for the use of wealthy American individuals and corporations, Europeans, Africans, Asians. So it's, it's all about allowing a certain section of society, whether corporations or wealthy individuals, to escape whatever it is they don't like, the, 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 the responsibilities that come with living, living in uh, society. Felicity Lawrence, we used to think of tax havens being places for rich individuals to go and put away their money, but companies, big companies, use them a lot as well, as your investigations have shown. Yes, we did a big investigation into uh, corporate tax avoidance. I mean, very deliberately focusing on that and looking at the way that large multinationals have managed to avoid tax in the countries where they make their profits by shifting operations on paper, not in reality, not that it's not physical operations, but quite often just an invoice trail to various tax havens around the world. And there's been the most enormous flight of capital uh, in the last 10, 15 years where you see huge uh, big household name companies like Boots, like uh, Walker's Crisps owned by PepsiCo, pharmaceutical companies. I mean, the list is hugely long. Restructuring themselves in such a way as to minimise their tax bills. And they've, uh, they're able to, to actually not on paper make much profit in the countries where they might be producing, say in developing countries. They charge themselves through subsidiaries offshore for management fees, for licensing, for the use of brands, so that on paper in the producing country they're not apparently making much profit and therefore not paying much tax. The profits are parked offshore and by the time the goods come to be sold, say in a developed country like the UK, they're charging themselves higher prices to import within their group uh, and so they don't appear to make much profit in the UK even though that might be where a large bulk of their sales are. And, And this is a phenomenon that's absolutely snowballed and it's become almost... Unstoppable. So you talk to big corporates privately will say, we can't not restructure in that way now because everybody else in our sector has done it and our shareholders would expect us to do it and, and, and we can't stay in business unless we do it. Maurice Glassman, we used to think of tax havens as being kind of tropical paradises, but the IMF fingered Britain as being an offshore tax haven as well. Well, we've got the biggest tax haven of them all in the city of London and that's the extraordinary story that we've got to move towards uh, city of london is an ancient city from time immemorial is outside the laws of parliament we're looking at the billingsgate porters at the moment who are all going to be sacked by the corporation of london workforce that goes back to the 1300s and there's nothing that the government can do because when it comes to the bylaws of the city of london they're a sovereign city state they're a commune and so what's happened is the city of london is a lobbyist for the free movement of money what Nick talks about. So, in fact, the in terms of the spider's web that Nick Shackson talks about, the spider's web of tax havens, half of them are feeders into the city of London. Most of them are old imperial dominions. So there's an entirely invisible empire out there, and I think someone should make a rock album about it. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, um, have you been to one of these offshore tax havens? What do they look like? What kind of governments do they have? Well, it depends. What do the people who live there make of them? It depends where you go. The, small, the Cayman Islands. The Cayman Islands, it, it's a strange mixture of uh, uh, America and, and the UK. There's a lot of British culture there. It looks more American than it does British, but there's a huge British element there. If you go to Jersey, it's the 
extraordinary, tiny little, very British island, but with a very, very alien political system. And, and there's an awful lot of political corruption and a lack of political party politics in Jersey. I mean, I, I remember friends asked me when I came back from Jersey, um, what was it like? And I think the best description I could come up was a mixture of uh, a mixture between Bournemouth and Equatorial Guinea. Uh, a very, so it's a very, very bizarre place to go, Jersey, if you go to investigate the politics. Um, if you don't go to investigate the politics, it just feels like any other British, British place, really, just a small, small British island. And w- what's in it for one of the 50,000 Cayman Islanders then? Well, the, the Cayman Islands, the local population uh, is they do gain. It's such a small population. This is the fifth biggest financial services centre in the world. And so there's absolutely vast amounts of money being made in the Cayman Islands and the Caymans is taking off fees from the money that's passing through there. And quite because the population of the Caymans is so small compared to this vast amount of money, uh, quite a lot of it does trickle down. There's still poverty in the Caymans, um, but it's not, uh, it's not as dramatic as, uh, as in other Caribbean islands. Um, but Caymans is very much an exception. Um, if you take uh, the United Kingdom, for example, which also has very, very important tax haven characteristics, um, as Morris was describing, the city of London as a kind of centre of this huge global network of tax havens, um, responsible for about a half of the entire global offshore system. And um, that's, that's what, through what? Consultancies advising companies and how well, to... What happens is that, uh, is that the havens scattered around the world each have a kind of focus on their geographical re- region. So in the Caribbean, those havens will tend to focus on North and South America. The Crown Dependencies, Jersey, Guernsey and the Isle of Man, will tend to focus on Europe. And other havens in the Pacific will, will focus on Asia. And then there's Hong Kong for China. So... What happens is, especially as financial liberalisation happens, there's a lot more business passing, international business happening in these areas. And these havens create special attractions, zero taxes or secrecy or whatever it is, to to lure this business in. And once it's in the haven, um, if it's a very British haven, then then a lot of that the money or just the business of handling the money will be passed up to the city. So a, a complex financial operation will be will be created where part of the part of the work is done by people in the haven itself, but a lot of the work will be sent up to the city. Um, so the city, so th- they are serving as as, as feeders, um, feeders of business up to the city, and that th- these are ultimately probably the most important element in the city of London's power is this network feeding business up to the city. Morris, what's in it for people in the city of London then? Well, I think uh, the whole world is at stake there. I mean, the city of London has to live with two parallel, completely contradictory truths. The first one is is that money can go anywhere, that there is no place in the world that is a place for capital, that that's the whole globalisation theory. And the second one is is that they are a physical entity rooted in Britain. And that's the extraordinary thing with the City of London is it's got the Lord Mayor, it's got the Alderman, it's got the Common Councilman, it's got the strongest and densest democratic institutions in the world. And they wish to keep themselves invisible. They wish to be a haven for invisible earnings. They work within an invisible tax system and this invisible tax network. And what is in it for them is the ability to make returns on their investment without paying tax, which I would think is quite a good incentive for anyone who wants to make money. Felicity, is this something that was ever thus, or is it a bandwagon that's kept going for a long time and smaller companies able to use these tax havens too? There's been tax avoidance for a very, very long time. Uh, And when I looked at it first, I mean, I was looking at uh, some of the big multinationals operating, trading their commodities through Switzerland in the 20s and out of Panama and Latin America. But I think what's happened since the 90s is 
there's been a complete explosion in it. It was a, a relatively minority sport, uh, but changes in technology, particularly with sort of the internet and the ability to shift things at the touch of a button between jurisdictions and locations, uh, and and to do this thing of physically separating your goods from the invoicing of them, uh, has taken off with with uh, the internet since since the 90s, and. No, I mean, small businesses can't do it. You've got to have huge... There's an enormous industry uh, of very expensive lawyers and very expensive accountants uh, setting up these structures, which work if you're a multi-million pound operation. But if you're, you know, if you've got a small turnover of, of, of a fraction of that, you, you can't make it work for you. And I, I think the very important point about this is this is completely distorting markets. You're getting multinationals able to out-compete Uh, smaller firms on factors that have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with real economic efficiency and real productivity, um, selling better and cheaper goods and services to the market. These are competing on uh, on this factor of uh, tax avoidance, which which is essentially simply a matter of wealth transfer, transferring money away from taxpayers towards multinational corporations. And this is creating huge distortions in the markets. And a lot of the smaller, smaller companies that you've seen in the high street going out of business, this out, this unproductive competitive factor has been has been an important reason why why multinationals have been able to dominate the high streets so successfully are you um, seriously telling me that the reason why a company like Woolworths went out of business because a company like Walmart is better able to organize it or Tesco is better able to organize its tax fairs? there's never a single reason for it but this is always uh, this is always an important factor one of the most important reasons why multinationals are multinationals is because they can do this because they can um, they can use tax uh, as a factor to, to, to gain a competitive a competitive advantage. And that's, so, and that's the whole link with our political situation, because obviously if you don't pay tax, that gives you a competitive advantage. So therefore, our economic well-being depends on not paying tax. Therefore, we've got to make cuts. But, Morris, what I've heard from all three of you, uh, whether it's about technology or about liberalisation or about an integrated world economy, is that this is a facet of globalisation, and it's very difficult for any one country to stop that and say, stop, stop this globalisation process, I want to get off. Oh, it's, it, it's not that at all. It's a particular variant of financialization of economies. And that's what we've got to recognise that, as Nick says, undermines any real productive economy, undermines the local high streets. So there's a direct link between tax avoidance and the homogenisation and emptying out of our high streets. And that's the important connection we've got to make. Nick, what do you want done about it? Well, there's no magic bullet that is going to solve all of this, um, I think. But there is, also, there is also a lot that can be done. There are a lot of people who hold their hands up and say, this is impossible, this is, these are just huge forces of globalisation and these are all sovereign states acting in their own interests. But if you look at the actual patterns of what's happening with the offshore system, you see the people who are overseeing this. We're, it's actually a very small number of players who are, who are crucially important. One is the United Kingdom and the City of London, absolutely, absolutely crucial. Another is the United States, which didn't used to be much of a tax haven, but it has increasingly, um, particularly through the lobbying power of Wall Street since about the 1970s, acquired its own tax haven characteristics. And there's also the organization that sets most international tax rules um, is the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation. The the Rich Nations Club. The The Club of Wealthy Nations. And the OECD has set up a set of tax rules, not just about tax, it's also about secrecy that uh, fundamentally skew the playing field that allow, uh, for example, large, huge capital flight out of developing countries 
um, if we're talking about international financial secrecy. And the OECD claims to have launched a crackdown on, on, on secrecy. But if you look at what's actually happened, they've done almost nothing has changed. They've been, it's, basically, we've got a swamp here, and the OECD has been handing out straws to drain the swamp. But what you've just described is you've described the forces of resistance to anything getting done. What yes. would you want to see done? Well, th- there, are, there are many different things. The, the first thing, I think we are in a stage of education now. The first thing, nobody, it, it's astonishing that this huge system, I mean, half of world trade passing through tax havens, this huge system has been all but invisible uh, since it really started exploding in the 1970s with a kind of step change in the 1990s. Um, so th- that is the stage we are at. We are at the stage of education, people understanding this. Um, we need to understand the role of the City of London. We in Britain need to understand this. Um, we have never really seen until UK Uncut came, came about um, organised street protests about tax avoidance, for example. This is an issue that, that has, has, has really blown up in the last year or two. But more specifically, there are, there are rather more mundane things that need to be done. Transfer pricing rules, what, what Felicity was talking about, the way that companies um, shift their profits around the world. There are alternatives, that are completely alternative ways of um, setting up uh, tax systems so that companies are taxed not on the artificial legal form that, they're, that they've uh, created, but on the actual real economic substance. Uh, there, there are arrangements. Explain that in lay terms. For example... If you had, if you created a formula, so a, a multinational will be taxed under a unitary tax system, where you create a formula under which income from that whole multinational company as a whole is allocated to the jurisdictions according to real economic factors like payroll, like sales, like assets. So, if you had, say, a, one, a company had a one-man booking office in the Cayman Islands, and it had a huge factory based and, in Britain, and it basically. had a huge factory based in Britain, a huge portion of its income would be allocated to Britain for tax purposes, and only a tiny portion would be allocated to the Cayman Islands to be taxed at its zero zero percent tax rate. So, you'd rate. stop this phenomenon of having thousands of businesses all in one building in Delaware. You would, you, you, you would. That would, that would be be a tremendous, tremendous step forward. Having said that, the vested interests opposing this are absolutely tremendous. And um, when this has been raised in public debate, all sorts of organisations, um, the OECD has been incredibly resistant to even considering this. But also the accounting firms, which make you billions of dollars of profits out of setting up the current. Um, shenanigans that multinationals are able to get get up to and also the multinationals who, who realize this is a way that they're going to get taxed properly the, the, one of the big arguments that companies and consultants use when they want to argue against the kind of thing that you're talking about is well if you do that to us then all we're going to do is move all of our production to places like china or vietnam or just to low tax jurisdictions well the fact is companies tax is always almost always one of the it sort of ranks fifth or sixth, uh, that kind of level, um, when companies decide where to relocate. Nobody's going to, you're not going to build a plant in, in Equatorial Guinea, a, a car assembly plant. What companies ultimately want is educated workforces. They want good infrastructure. They want good health care. Tax is a factor, but it isn't. There are often a lot of threats made if you raise taxes on us, we'll go overseas. But even in the financial sector, we've seen that politicians have called, when politicians have called their bluff, uh, the sky hasn't fallen in. And, and, and so it is quite possible to be a country that imposes that taxes a multinational properly and will still get the business, um, despite the threats and threats of relocation that we're always constantly seeing. Felicity, Nick started off by saying that we need to have more education. But when you have people staging sit-ins at top shops and a daily mail running campaigns against tax avoidance haven't we really passed that point aren't people already pretty angry about being ripped off as they see it by people not paying their taxes well i think 
they are, but that's incredibly new as a phenomenon, and I think it's very exciting having done some pretty head-banging work year before last trying to explain in ordinary English what was going on. I'm hugely encouraged to see that kind of stuff taken up and the sort of things that Tax Justice Network have been campaigning for 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 ages, years and years, finally coming through and people making the link. And and I think one of the things that's so brilliant about the protests is that uh, is that they don't talk about tax the rich, which people are sort of very resistant to, even if they're not rich. But they talk about pay the tax you owe. And that's the sort of, that's the big shift, This people seeing the injustice of it and and grasping the basics. I mean, you know, even as we're talking about what, would, what could we do to stop it, you get bogged down in terribly technical jargon and people switch off. All the Americans have this phrase for it, you know, my eyes glaze over, it's too complicated, can't get the hang of it. Migo. But of course, yeah. Migo, that phrase. But of course, the whole point of it is that it's been deliberately made obscure by companies. They want it to be technically impossible. I had a great breakthrough when I was working on it, realizing I'm not meant to understand this, and the tax inspector's not meant to understand it either. Um, so there's lots of room for simplification. But we've got, we have, we have with this new movement, in a very exciting way, got beyond that complication for people just to see the bones of it, which is that if you wish to function in a civilized society, you have to contribute and you should contribute according to how much you can afford uh, which which we accept in terms of income by and large although we all grumble about taxes we accept that and we want corporations and rich people to accept that too and yes if they if they uh, if they say well they'll go elsewhere let them go elsewhere. In practice, most people don't want to go and sit in Zug, even though it's a tax haven, because it's incredibly boring. They want to be able to go to the restaurants of London and use the education system here and all the rest of it. Nick, we've heard G20 leaders, we've had Barack Obama all railing against, you know, the sort of tax inequity, but very little has happened, has it? Very little has happened. I mean, in April 2009, the G20 leaders made this bold statement the era of bank secrecy is over and we're launching a crackdown and we mandate the OECD to, to, to kind of lead this crackdown. The OECD put together this kind of black, white and grey list of jurisdictions. And the world's media was kind of filled of stories of, you know, tax havens are finished. And uh, uh, there was a lot of, uh, if not finished, at least uh, going to be dealt a, a serious blow. Very few people noticed that five days after the G20 leaders made that statement, the OECD list, the blacklist, part of the black, white and grey list, the blacklist was empty just five days after that statement. How do you mean empty? Um, basically, there were some jurisdictions that were in the blacklist, and then five days afterwards, the OECD announced that th- those jurisdictions were no longer... They, they were, weren't so bad. They'd gone up to the grey list, yes. And, and now on the grey list, there are a, a few minnows left. Um, I think they probably account for about sort of 2% of, uh, of cross-border financial services. So, um, you know, the OECD by that logic, seems to be saying that the problem is 98% solved. Whereas, in fact, business is just going on as normal. The secrecy is still very much intact. The OECD information exchange agreements are almost almost nothing. They're, they're slightly better than nothing, but they're almost, they've almost produced nothing in terms of real exchange of information between jurisdictions that will help them tax their own citizens. So, yes, very little has changed. And to be honest, the offshore system is growing, growing very fast indeed, much faster than the onshore economy. It, it has been since the 1970s. And if you look at uh, multinational corporations, there was some quite good work done in the United States a few months ago about um, the likes of Google and Cisco and Microsoft 
And they, I just saw, looking at a graph of how their corporate overseas corporate profits and and their taxes on those profits have gone. You just see this incredible slump, uh, particularly in the last ten years. So there is this um, horrible process of, uh, of of the tax charge on multinational corporations falling very fast. And I think the current government is also quite. Uh, keen to go along with this kind of process, they see it as a this this notion of national competitiveness, which is this actually, is in US, is it? This is Barack oh no, so, no, the the, the, the UK government. Yes, Barack. The United States is a little bit diff- different. It's been much more contested. The, the offshore system is much more contested in the United States. There are lots of influential people who hate the whole thing and are trying to do something about it. But there are also probably even more inf- influential people who are in favour of it and and are. are First of all, tolerating tax havens outside the United States sucking money out of the US, but also tolerating the United States being a tax haven in its own right, sucking money in from other countries and providing secrecy and all sorts of other attractions that harm people elsewhere. So, yeah. Final question to you, Lord Glassman of Stoke Newton and Stamford Hill. I keep reading about how you're the guru of Ed Miliband. What are you lot going to do about it? Well, I think there's a really, really important moment for Labour to seize it's not the case that I have that relationship with Ed, but obviously I do think about Labour. And the key thing is that I argue in Labour is Labour's got to be very tough on welfare cheats. It's got to really reform the welfare state. It's got to really clamp down on free riding, on people abusing the trust of other people, because we've got to have reciprocity all the way down and all the way up. And that's the thing. We've got to, in order to really stand up to the tax avoiders and the welfare cheats in the banking and the corporate level, we've also got to face up to the welfare cheats in the system. And if we can have a common responsibility, common life, common culture, and we can have a really great Labour government. Yeah, but, Maurice, you know that Labour were much tougher in government. They were much tougher on welfare cheats, That's they the call them, than the people in the city. That's exactly the problem. So what we've got to do is we've got to keep that line and we've got to have a contributory state, a, recipro- a reciprocal state where everybody gets in and everybody gets out. My point is we, we didn't make the argument against the corporations. We didn't take on capital. We didn't take on the city. Far from that, we were a kiss-up, kick-down government. And I think we've just got to kiss up and kick, kiss down as well now. And what chance do you think of that happening? Well, it's up to people. Uh, uh, I mean, our Labour front base this is, is a up very, look, This is a very fluid moment. I think we've got to get out of thinking about what's who's up and who's down in Westminster. We've got the uncut stuff. We've got people being very aware of how unfair the the, the cuts are, not, not really knowing what to do. We've got to tell a national story about how we let the City of London slip offshore and how we get it back to be part of our country again. Same with Dover Port, same with Sherwood Forest. Right, that's it for this week. My thanks to Felicity Lawrence, Nick Shackson and Maurice Glassman. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Shakaborty. Thank you and see you next week. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.